0: This is ContraZoom,
1: where we go back and forth about film.
0: I'm Dakota Arsenault.
1: And I'm Rachel Ho.
0: It's finally that time of year again. While other publications post their top ten lists starting in mid-December, and other podcasts release their shows in early January, we, on the other hand, are contrarians. As is tradition around here, we wait until after the Oscars to release our lists. Why? Because if I made my list before the Oscars, I think maybe four of my top 10 films wouldn't have made the cut as they were seen after 2021 had already concluded. And I'm sure Rachel had a few last minute additions as well. If you listen to our Oscar pick show or read our If We Were Oscar Voters blog post, there probably wouldn't be uh, any real surprises about uh, what we're thinking. We also have uh, friends on the show, friends of the show, send in voicemails of their favorite movies from last year. So you'll get to hear some voices other than our own. Now, Rachel, this is the third best of the year list, if I'm not mistaken, that you have now done. Are you sick of doing this exercise?
1: Never. it's great. I like the idea that I got three tries at this. And I think you are correct. I think it is three because I didn't participate in one of them but um yeah I um I did a list for exclaim although that wasn't really my list that was like a compilation of a bunch of writers putting a list together and then I had my own list that was on my blog um but I have made changes and like you said I think I add I was very firm that my top three was not moving and then I watched a movie and it and it moved it moved my top three did move um but yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we had the extra three-ish months to to make the list. You have a pretty much an ongoing list on Letterboxd, though.
0: Yes. Yeah. I. I I'm not. Important enough for people to actually care, but I do have a public list that is constantly going. Uh, every time I see a movie from that calendar year, I add it and rank it, so that way I kind of have a good idea. Because you know it's always tough when you're like, oh, that movie that I saw back in March. What did I think about it yeah. compared to a movie I saw last night? Which one is better? And if I you know look at my list and be like, all right, yeah, it was a four and a half star, and currently I have it rated, you know, fifth place. Did I think it was probably better than this? Was it around the same area so so it really is helpful, so that way, at the end of the year, I'm not like trying to sift through all the movies I saw and be like, "What was my number three? I don't know what was my number seven? What's the difference?
1: See, I would counter that a bit with with more time, you're able to let a movie like really sink in um and the ones that you are still feel very strongly about like months later that's probably more. Indicative of a true top 10, although Mm -hmm. I always like kind of bristle at the top 10 things. I'm like, in a few months time, we could watch a couple movies that were released last year, like just by chance, right? And then be Mm -hmm. like, oh, damn, like, I wish that we had include included that into the top 10. Um, So I, I feel like it's it's a snapshot in time. And for any accounting nerds out there, it reminds me of a balance sheet of just <laughs> a snapshot in time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of like I get what you're doing. And uh, I think for you in particular, though, because you don't really rewatch a lot of movies, whereas I'm a, a heavy, heavy rewatcher. Yeah. So I feel like your, your instant reaction at that moment, like that's probably what it's going to be and without a revisit in a few months time.
0: And yeah, because I'm not often revisiting films, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, you have to trust March Dakota that the way he felt then was the case. (laughs) Obviously, you know, I, I do move stuff around on my list. And, you know, it's more so, you know it's fine we we have this group chat we're a part of and the green knight has been a topic recently uh yeah. coming up because someone in it has been uh, was it alex or brody that finally just watched it was it alex, alex, alex
1: yeah alex yeah. finally
0: watched the green knight and so we were kind of discussing it and you mentioned how you've now seen it 3 times and you keep yeah. thinking about it and despite your original review being kind of mixed the fact that you keep thinking about it and keep wanting to watch it must mean something and yeah, it's sort of the same way. If you, if you watch a movie and you can't get it out of your head, whether it yeah. was, you know, your favorite movie or just a movie you were mixed on or whatever, that's probably a good sign that you liked it a lot. You know, what, what does the end definition mean? I don't really know, but <laughs> so I'll make my list on Letterbox, And then if I'm like, Hey, I keep thinking about this movie. I put it at number seven. I keep thinking about this movie more than the movie at number six, more than the movie at number five. It must mean it has to go up a bit. So I'll kind of shuffle things around a little bit, usually only within my top 10 or so. If if I have a movie ranked, you know, number 50, I don't care. I'm not going to change that. There's no real <laughs> difference between my, you know, 42nd movie and my 57th movie. There, there, there's no real difference between them. They're all rated like two and a half stars, two stars, whatever. <laughs>
1: I feel like like the Green Knight's a really good example. That didn't end up in my top 10 or in my honorable mentions either. But I probably should because given I've seen it more than I've seen some of my top 10s. And the only reason I keep revisiting it is because I have no idea what I feel about it, um, despite writing a review for it. Um, I still don't know what I think about it. And then Alex said his wife watched it too and was like, what the hell is this? Like, she didn't know what to think <laughs> either. But I yeah. feel like it, that maybe I don't know if that necessarily makes it a good movie, but it certainly makes it an interesting movie.
0: Mm-hmm. And I feel I have one movie on my list where I feel it sort of fits the definition of a movie that you kind of think about a lot. And when we get to it, I'll reveal which one. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you could probably imagine. You know, it's actually probably two of them, really. Um, I'll reveal both of them when when they come up. And they're definitely movies that I think you would agree with that they are ones that kind of live in your head for a little bit.
1: Definitely. And that for me, that's my favorite kind of movie. And that's why my number one is my number one, because I haven't stopped thinking about it since I watched it. So
0: exactly. So the way this is going to work is we're going to go in order 10 through one, except for there's going to be some things that change around for any movie that appears on both of our lists, which there are a few of them. We're going to save that until it gets to the higher ranked person's list. I don't really know how else to word this, but as we're going through, you're going to kind of get what we're doing here, uh, especially once we get to the first one on the list. So it, it does gonna it is going to bounce around just a little bit. At the end of it, we'll probably recap what our 10 through 1 is, so that way you can see it. It'll also be in the show notes, so you'll be able to see all that there. And then also, every once in a while, we're going to hear a voicemail from one of our friends of the show who sent in their pick for their favorite movie from last year, and we'll have a brief little discussion about what we think of that. So without further ado, shall we get into all this?
1: Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this one.
0: All right. So we're going to hear our first voicemail from our friend, Thomas
2: Stoneham Judge. What's up, everyone? Thomas here with For Real. And my favorite film of 2021, which will come as no surprise to anyone who knows me, uh, is the film Flea, um, directed by Jonas Porea Rasmussen. Um The film had its world premiere at Sundance last year, where I had a chance to see it, and have been singing its praises ever since. There's a lot of reasons why I like this film, um, but it's an animated documentary, which is a unique combination, um, but allowed for such a creative way to express... story um, of Amen, um, who was a refugee, uh, also coming to terms uh, with his identity as he was coming of age in this space where that is such a challenging thing to do. Um, I just really connected with this story and loved how the film was put together. Um, And it's a shame that it did not win any Oscars this year.
0: So there's a reason why I did this one first, because Rachel, what is your number ten movie?
1: It is absolutely Flea, and to be honest, <laughs> I I could have moved it up, um, but I don't know why I didn't. I like it. I I love Flea. I completely agree with Thomas. It's such a thought provoking film. It's um, very emotional. It's very there's a lot of passion behind it, and I love that it's not just simply. I mean, I say this a bit. Dismissively, and I don't mean it to sound like that, but it's not just a refugee story. Like it's the story of a young man who um, has had a very interesting life in a very kind of short years, like relatively speaking, he's he's a very young guy still. And to go through, you know, escaping Afghanistan at at a young age, and then having to live in Russia for a time, which wasn't pleasant, and then finally making it to Denmark. Um, And then once he got to Denmark, there was you know, a second kind of storyline about a coming out story for him and whether or not his family was going to accept that given his more traditional conservative background, like the way that he had grown up. So I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful movie. The animation, as Thomas said, is incredible. Like it really complements the story really nicely. And it's better than, you know, sometimes like a really bad documentary or those A&E when we were growing up, like those A&E, you know, true crime things and they reenact mm-hmm. scenes. I always find those just really campy and they never look good and they just seem very false and I don't know, very daytime film like, And but when you animate it, it, it takes you out of the reality because it's obviously it's animated, but it makes it more realistic in that sense. Um, so I, I loved the use of animation for it and I'm very, um as much as i you know i like that summer of soul one for um you know what summer of soul means like i was very disappointed that flea didn't get in for for documentary and i mean even for animation i think it should have probably been the winner for that one
0: yeah it was a movie i really liked as well and and i agree with the ability to recreate the story through animation instead of using live action recreations really does help, it because it often can feel cheesy or forced or whatever adjective you like to describe watching things like these two true crime shows that you mentioned, where, you know, someone in a bad way to kind of look like the person that they're playing and you know, they're not allowed to talk because you realize that they sound nothing like them. <laughs> this way, you're able to be fully immersed into this story that they are telling is so beautiful beautiful. And and I do like that the animation has this, you know, hand-drawn quality. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel overly polished like you're watching a Disney or Pixar movie, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I find the most interesting animated films are ones where you can actually see the artistic talent behind it, where you can tell that it's someone putting the time and the energy into it to not make it flawless, but to make it unique and to make it beautiful. And Flea is one of those movies that that is able to do that, and so I really appreciate that about Flea. And and you're right, the story is just so heartbreaking and mm-hmm. and heartbreaking and uplifting and inspiring. And you can just keep going on and on and on about all these different things of of ways to describe this film.
1: It's I mean, we were talking about before, you know, movies that stick with you. And I think flea, like Amund's story is one that will stick with you. And especially with everything that's going on in the world right now, um, it becomes I mean, it's never not been relevant, unfortunately, because there's always an instance of some big refugee moment going on somewhere in the world. And it's always very sad. But it's one of those that I think for years to come, it will always come back up, like it'll always pop up in your head when you're watching Mm -hmm. the news or whatever it might be like, Um, which is kind of sad in its own little way, (laughs) because that's just the state of the world we live in. But yeah, Flea is a gorgeous movie. And if you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out.
0: Absolutely. So we're going to continue with your number nine pick. And this is one I have not seen. So please enlighten me.
1: So my number nine pick is a Korean movie called Aloners. That's obviously the English title. I'm not going to attempt the Korean title pronunciation. Um, and I saw this movie at TIFF. Uh, and it is about a concept called, apologies for my pronunciation, honjuk, which in Korea is basically this idea that people are choosing to live on their own. Like, I don't want to say in isolation, but they choose to be antisocial. They choose to limit the number of interactions that they have, um, socially speaking. You know, they don't really want friends. They don't want to go out for a drink after work. Um, They choose to eat lunch alone. And it's becoming very common amongst a younger generation, probably our generation as well. Um, You know, and, and there's a variety of, reasons why that is but what this movie does what a loner says is it follows a young woman who um is played the character's name is gina um it's played by gong sung yon who is absolutely phenomenal and she is one of those young people who works a telemarketing job and just lives you know seemingly very content with her life um, on her own with no friends it dives a little bit into family and maybe what has driven her to be a bit more antisocial. Um things come to a bit of a head when her neighbor, who is very similar to her, has died. Um, they're not overly explicit as to how he passed away, but it is the idea of he died alone and he was a young guy and it took days to find him, you know, and uh and and obviously that is during COVID and everything like that when people were very alone. It felt very relevant again, you know. Uh, and it is a shame that I think that for as much interaction that we have online, we've suddenly become maybe a little bit more antisocial in real life. Um, it's just a movie that really, really stuck with me. I'm not the most socially active person out there. Uh, I'm not as bad as this. like I I don't mind having lunch with other human <laughs> beings I'm not that bad but I could definitely relate to this idea of just sometimes you just want to be by yourself and you don't want to make new friends and it's terrible for I suppose the social fabric of you know general society um, but it is something that's common I think amongst younger people and I don't know if it's necessarily a negative thing or if it's just a you know an evolution of how we are as humans um, the more you know the more points of interaction that we have in our lives that are stuck on our phone, maybe the less that we're going to be looking up at people. So it was just a movie that, like, like, again, it's a common theme, I suppose, for the top 10. Is It's a movie that really stuck with me since I saw it. And I only saw it once at TIFF, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you if what festival you saw this on, because I, I do remember you talking about it. But you saw it during TIFF this year?
1: Yeah, um, it was during, did I say it? No, there was, uh, I think I saw this one virtually. Um, and it was just it was literally like I remember telling my brother and he kind of laughed at me because I read the description, which was like this young woman is a loner. And I was like, oh, I should watch that. <laughs> that sounds super like something that I should really watch. And my brother was just like, you're such an idiot. Like, why are you why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you I was watching like, a documentary know? about yourself? That's basically he was like, it's just like a reality show for you, isn't it? It's just like you, you <laughs> hope you wish your life could just be that isolated. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was like. Huh? But um, it's, it's honestly, it's a great movie. And I was trying to track down whether or not I could find like a DVD or not DVD, Blu-ray. I do have a Blu-ray player. Um, but yeah, I, I have, I'm have. i sure I could probably get it in Korea, but um, not in Canada. It's been a little bit difficult. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how people can watch it, um, which is unfortunate. But if ever you're coming across Korean films and you come across a loners, it's definitely one to check
0: out. Yeah, maybe there's like a VHS copy as well floating around.
1: Possibly. I mean, I don't want to stereotype Asians, but yeah, we are known for I'm not gonna keep going. We're we're known for certain things, and quite frankly, if you want to try to get a movie that way, more power to you. Um I I have
0: no objections to that. <laughs> Piracy is the word you're you're trying to avoid, right?
1: I don't I don't know what that word means. I don't,
0: right. I don't okay. know what you're talking about. So, I'm going to go with my first movie of the list. I'm just, you know, I screw segues, just, just going to power it through here. Uh, we're going to get to my first movie, which isn't my number 10 or my number 9. We're going to start at my number 8 movie, and obviously, like I said earlier, you'll kind of find out why later. But my number 8 movie is Nightmare Alley, which is the new Guillermo del Toro movie, and it stars... Such a fantastic cast: Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman. Like this is just such a stacked cast. I've I've always been a fan of Del Toro's work. I would probably say *Pan's Labyrinth* is my favorite movie of his, and I would think that this is actually maybe now my second favorite Del Toro movie. This is a noir movie, which is. You know, someone, people always ask me, what's your favorite genre of movies? And I kind of struggle with that because like, how how do you say just like what genre movies? And especially if you're like us where you just watch just about everything, you're just like, I don't know, a good movie is my favorite genre. But <laughs> I'll usually, my default will be like, oh, I love noirs. You know, I would love, you know, watching 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s noir films. I love, you know, crime movies, stuff like that. It's really interesting. In this Turns into a really brutal noir movie. It is so dark and overbearing, and the further along you go, it is like you're just being dragged through the depths of of hell of mankind of of how low can people go to achieve what they believe they think is theirs and so you 've got Bradley Cooper, who plays this guy at the very beginning. you know he's inside a house that's on fire, and you don't know what the hell is going on. And later you learn it's because he killed someone in this house, or at least allowed them to die and didn't do anything to stop them, depending on how you want to look at it. And so he runs away and decides to join a circus, where there he learns how to be a mentalist from David Strathern and Tony Collette, who are mentalists in the circus. And and they they're like, hey, just remember at the end of the day, No, we're just here to have fun. You can't let the Mark believe that you can actually talk to the dead. Because once you do that, they will believe too hard and it will ruin their life. And he kind of goes, oh, yeah, I get that. Ruin their life. Let's do that part. (laughs) And so he (laughs) leaves the circus and basically does this mentalist act that he stole from David Strathern's character. From his cold dead hand, which he may or may not have actually killed him as well, depending on how you want to look at it. And it, it goes from this like dark and gritty circus movie to this really upscale, classy, modern, art deco sort of movie of him doing this mentalist act and kind of getting deeper and deeper into believing his own gifts and where this sort of leads. And eventually all sort of comes full circle in a very disturbing way that just kind of like leaves knots in your stomach and a lump in your throat. And I loved just how brutal this movie was. I love the look. I love the feel. The costumes are gorgeous. The lighting is fantastic. The performances are just through the roof. I wish... I know it it ended up getting nominated for best picture in the end. It kind of snuck in, but I I would have been so happy if it got a bunch more nominations as well.
1: Yeah. This is one that not only is it not on my top 10. um, I actually didn't really like this movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like I I think it is beautiful. It's like it's Guillermo del Toro. So you're always going to get a really nice looking movie, right? Like I feel like that's kind of a given when you get to a del Toro movie. I just couldn't get into the story. Like, I I don't know if it's, I don't, I'm not the biggest Bradley Cooper fan, so I don't know if his face just, I had a bit of an aversion to it. Um, But what you're saying sounds like an amazing movie. Like, the way you've (laughs) described it, it sounds fantastic. And genuinely, it has made me think maybe I should rewatch it. Because maybe I just wasn't in the right headspace for it at the time. But I personally found it a little boring, Um, Hmm. which is yeah, which I like again, your description is not boring, and it sounds great. so maybe maybe I need to give it a, another watch.
0: This movie certainly is very divisive amongst people who have seen it. You get people like me who are just head over heels for mm-hmm. it. And then there's people like you who are like, it just didn't work for me. It was a little too long. the The stories, the two different stories didn't work well together. Uh, a whole bunch of different stuff. Some people think that, that Cooper's performance isn't all that great. I loved his performance. I loved how quiet in meditative it was while well, still you're able to project a lot onto him and and try to figure out who he is as a person but i i, I get where you're coming from and i'm not like disappointed that you didn't like it <laughs> maybe a little bit but uh i'll forgive you
1: i feel like cooper needs to stop playing like a 20 something year old obvious like as well like he's he's, <laughs> he's 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 a handsome man but you know there's a cutoff point where you just got to say, "I cannot play like a, cause I don't know if he's meant to be 20-something, but he's meant to be young at the beginning, right? Like quite young." Um, and I never yeah, I don't, really yeah, buy it's... that from him. Like I don't—he's not a young-looking dude anymore. And mm-hmm. and like a lot of what he does at the beginning of the film, you chalk it up to—I mean, being a bad person, sure, but like there is an element of he is young. He's like juvenile. He's immature. He hasn't quite come into himself as a man yet, um, whether good or bad. Um, but I, I just couldn't get into that part of the story because I was like, I'm watching a 40-year-old pushing 50 actor and <laughs> he should know better as far as I'm concerned.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. But uh, now we're going to move on to our next voicemail and that's from Callum McNabb. Hello, Callum
3: from the Scared Reducing team here and my favourite movie from 2021 is James Wan's Malignant Now, hopefully Rachel doesn't just openly laugh on the podcast at how ridiculous that seems again, but here we are. I'm being honest. Why is it my favourite movie of the year? Well, number one, I'm a horror guy. Number two, I'm a Wan fan. (laughs) He is putting to use some exemplary filmmaking skills to create one of the most bonkers studio horror films in, I'm going to say, decades How, I just, yeah, get the popcorn out, get it on. And for anyone who thinks it goes too far, these are the kind of people who would have poo-pooed Freddy Krueger back in the 80s. Oh, he comes in your dreams? How ridiculous is that? Yes, he appears in your dreams. And Gabriel appears out the back of a woman's head. We have a new horror icon in our hands, folks. It's
0: Malignant. Best movie of the year. So you've now been called out (laughs) by Callum. Because on our... Yes, on our podcast where we uh, did our Oscar predictions, I asked everyone to submit a ballot ranking their preferential votes. And then also, what was their favorite movie of the year? And when I read out Malignant, that two people had actually put Malignant. I believe it was both Callum and Mary Lee from Once Upon a Time at the Oscars. And you audibly guffawed at that response.
1: I just, like, okay. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to say, I don't, I like horror movies. I just didn't think it was very good. I don't know. I will say, I think James Wan, he does some really interesting things in that movie in terms of like camera work. Uh, like I found that really fascinating. And I particularly, there was like a scene that was, I think an overhead shot of the house. I want to say, and um you kind of follow her through and it looks very maze like, and that looks like that was very cool. And obviously there's a big, I don't know, spoil it for people, but there's like a big scene in the jail cell and things like that. But uh, yeah, I just, I I know that there are very um, passionate fans of Malignant. And do you remember when Malignant came out and the response on Twitter?
0: Uh, yeah, I sort of do. Like, people were, like, going nuts about it.
1: Yeah, like, some people were, like, Callum and saying, like, this is the greatest horror movie that, like, to say decades—that's such a bold statement—and I do love that he said that because I feel like we should be taking bold steps when we talk about movies. Um, but then there are people who are just like that. It's a piece of crap. Like this is not cinema. Like Martin Scorsese would not consider it cinema. <laughs> and it's just it. Like I love movies that have such um, such a visceral reaction to them, and I feel like horror films are generally the movies that get that kind of reaction, and that's why as a genre horror fans I feel like are the most passionate people I know Brody mm-hmm. um friend of the show he's also a really really big um horror fan um but yeah I mean I love the pick because I feel like it is a divisive movie and I like that someone's going for again doing it again with it, but yeah it did catch me off guard the first time and then when we were doing this and you had said like Callum's gonna send um, voice note and i'm thinking he's gonna pick malignant again isn't he and we're gonna have to talk about this movie again um i am also a wand fan though so i will i'll put that out there i am a james wand fan as well
0: well i i messaged him after he sent it to me i said uh thanks for calling out rachel i enjoyed that part <laughs> and his response was i'm trying my best to start a podcast feud drum up some twitter trending points
1: yeah we're gonna start. Beef. What do you think of *Malignant*? Did you have you seen it or have you not seen no, it?
0: No, I have not seen it. You've not seen it. Fair <laughs> enough. Because so yeah, I cannot weigh in on, thing, this yeah. Yeah, on this battle.
1: It's not that Rachel scary, v. caliber. To be battle. honest, but I, it's like it's, it's just I find it funny. Like I, but I love it. I love. I genuinely do love. Like I'm not being um, patronizing here. Like I do love that he picked it because I feel like that's the whole point of picking number one movies. Because it's yeah, um, the ones that you're most passionate about and. My number one like I don't know if I think only one person I've recommended that movie to actually really enjoyed it. Everybody else was like I didn't really get it. So I I'm completely <laughs> I completely understand where Callum's coming from with Malignant.
0: Well, we're going to have Callum on sometime uh, in the next few months <laughs> to talk about Under the Skin and uh and I and I'm very interested to sort of uh be in the middle of your the two of you debating.
1: I f- I feel like I should watch Malignant again um beforehand. maybe i'll
0: watch it just in preparation just yeah. to just to have just a side to See,
1: yeah just to see maybe maybe i feel differently i probably won't i don't <laughs> see foresee right. myself feeling differently but you know i'll watch it again
0: let's move on now we've got our first joint pick so my number nine and your number eight which is
1: piggy pig it's just pig it's not piggy cute. pig. It's not, cute. Piggy. it's not cute it's not cute like piggy it's pig Nicolas Cage in his cage Assance, the Nicolas cage Assance is continuing this year. Um, P- uh, Pig, which was directed by Michael Sarnowsky. And it was his first um, movie that he directed, which I think is incredible that this is the first thing that you come out the gate with. Because uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal movie about... I think, uh, I think the funny thing about this one was when we all saw the trailer for it, everybody kind of thought it was Nicolas Cage doing John Wick. Um. Someone mm-hmm. steals his pig or kills his pig and you know, man goes into town and is like, I got to avenge my pig. Right. And that's what it felt like. But the movie is absolutely nothing like that. It is a man who is on the surface. It's like his, his truffle pig. He, he, Nicolas Cage plays a guy who's living isolated out in the forest. And um, he is a truffle hunter, I suppose, Um, who's a former chef. Excuse me. And his truffle pig gets um, stolen from him, and then he goes into the city uh, looking for it. And it just kind of devolves into a movie that's more about grief and about kind of life in general. And it's a really, really, really beautiful movie, and very unexpected from Nicolas Cage. I think it's probably, I think it's his best performance. It's definitely one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies. Um, Right up there with Face Off, which I know is a very different movie, but it's it's incredible, <laughs> and I love that we're seeing a turn for Nicholas, like a lot of love for Nicholas Cage. I think he's always had his niche fan base, but I think generally in like a wider range, people are starting to appreciate him a little bit more. Um, and I I love I I saw the unbearable weight. What is it called? The unbearable weight of massive talent. I saw that last week and. Mm-hmm it's nice to see him can continue on. And I think pig is, yeah, it's just an incredible movie for him to have on his um, filmography that it's very, very different to every, anything that he's done in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I was a, I was a big fan of, of it as well. I'm, I'm not as high on, on the cage as most people are previous to this, but I absolutely adored this performance. It was so raw and gritty and quiet and is not, like we normally expect from him. He has like one cagey moment where he yells at a kid when he's taking a bike and that's kind of <laughs> about it. The rest of it is just so introspective and just a man allowing whatever abuse you want to throw at him, he's fine with, but he just wants what he wants and he he knows what he wants. And I think something that is often not talked about in this movie is the performance by Alex Wolf, yeah. who plays his truffle dealer and a lot of people don't talk about i really like alex wolf he he first kind of uh came to to be in like hereditary he was in old this year i've seen a few different things i've always thought he was a fantastic actor and it's really tough to go toe-to-toe with cage and i think he does a great job of not allowing cage to overshadow him of him being a good recognizable character and also serving the story's needs that when he needs to be subtle and allow C- Cage to shine, he's able to do that. And when he needs to have the bigger moment, he's also able to step in and do that too.
1: Completely agree. I mean, I, I understand why his performance is getting a bit overshadowed because people were just really excited about Nicholas Cage. Um, but yeah, absolutely. He, he knocks it out of the park. And I also want to add um, David Nell who plays another chef, chef, Derek Finway. Um, who has a scene like they're sit him and Nicholas Cage are sitting opposite one another in-, in, um, kind of go, it's like a tête a tête between the two of them. And um, David Nell is also incredible in that scene. And I think it's, yeah. it's that it's for me that, that scene in that movie is um yeah, that's my favorite part of the film.
0: For me, it's probably the final dinner scene. Yeah, that is a great he one. recreates too. the meal and I don't really want to reveal too much about yeah. it because that's, a kind of moment you you know what's coming, but when yeah. it happens, it still just like completely knocks you off your feet.
1: And it's so quiet too, which is so different for Cage. Like Cage is known for being loud and you know, kind of camp and, and that kind of thing. But this is it's such a quiet movie. And um I
0: love that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What is your number seven pick?
1: My number seven is a movie called Saloom, um, which is another movie I saw at TIFF. I actually realized I have a number of films on this list that I came to it through um, TIFF this year. So shout out to TIFF for getting good movies. Um, it is a movie that was at Midnight Madness, and I was very frustrated that it didn't actually. I think it got runner up, um, or no, it didn't get runner up. That stupid movie. Ugh, I don't even want to talk about it. It was like a really dumb movie got runner up. And I was very upset about that. Um, But this is a movie that comes from Senegal and it's from a a Congolese director named Jean-Luc Herbold. It is, it's a, it's a very genre bending film. Um, It is about mercenaries who uh, come across, like they, they end up in uh, Senegal and they're they're on an Island that at first it seems very random that they landed there. Like they had a bit of a, a plane wreck and that's why they're there. But it's, as you continue to watch the film, you realize that it was actually a very intentional thing as to how they ended up on that Island. And it mixes sci-fi, it mixes fantasy, um, suspense and, and kind of thriller, uh, a little bit of horror elements as well. And it is it's such an incredible movie. It was the only movie that I watched at TIFF that I remember. Once it finished, I immediately started it from the beginning because I, I just wanted to watch it again. Wow. And I, it's, I, it's doing the rounds right now at um, different film festivals. I believe it's playing at the the most recent one coming up is the Calgary under Underground Film Festival CUFF. Um, it's it's got a spot there, and I, I noticed that. Um, it's such a it's such a great movie. Of like, it's so. It's so visceral in a sense. I know I've already used that word today, so <laughs> I need more vocab. But it's just one of these movies that it's, it's really colorful and it's really dark. And you know the budget makes the CGI maybe not as swish and as great as, as maybe we're used to sometimes, although I would argue a lot of Marvel movies have bad CGI. So it's just one of these movies that all round, from start to finish, you're gripped and you're compelled and you're locked into the film. And when it finishes, it's a satisfying ending, but you immediately want to jump back into it. Um, I did a talk, uh, like a Zoom chat thingy after TIFF ended with some writers on that shelf. And or no, sorry, I wasn't a part of it, but the the team over at that shelf did it. And there were two other writers who for them, that was their favorite movie um, of, of TIFF as well. And it's just, it's so, it's such an incredible movie. And I got a little disheartened because I read a review about it and someone said, this will make a great remake in Hollywood one day. I was like, God, <laughs> that really bothered me because I'm like, it's such a perfect movie. And it, because it mixes some spirituality elements from um like Senegalese culture and, you know, also bits of like Christianity and this, it's, it's a very, very, very interesting movie and I hope to see a distribution of it one day. I don't know if that's it's, it's tough for these kinds of movies, but um, I hope the reason that people come to it, or I I hope that the reason people come to it isn't because Hollywood decided to take it and like bastardize a remake of it, which I'm sure is going to happen. But yeah, it's an incredible movie. I I really,
0: really love it. Yeah. This is one that you really don't, hear a lot about i i haven't seen much about it on on other people's lists even even critics that sort of champion smaller films so i'm glad we're we're getting a couple really unique films on your list unfortunately i haven't seen this so i can't really talk about it but it does sound very interesting and i hope to one day catch up with it
1: i think you'd actually really really enjoy it like i know i said there's some horror elements but it's not like it's not like malignant horror it's not like that kind of horror movie um it's it's like a Supernatural horror, I guess is probably the best way. To mm-hmm. say Although malignant is yeah. supernatural, but anyways, enough about malignant. Moving on.
0: <laughs> All right, moving on to my number seven pick, and that is Joel Cohen's "The Tragedy of Macbeth," starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. I really love this adaptation of the Shakespeare play. I've talked about it so many times now, I feel like I'm just constantly repeating myself, but I love the look that this movie has where it is shot like it is on a theater set, but then it is heightened enough to be unique to film. So you get the sort of best of both worlds where you have a play and you respect its origins in the theater, but you also make it filmic enough that it's not like you're just watching, not that there's anything wrong with this, but you, know, you can go to Cineplex or wherever and see, you know, a performance of the Globe Theater doing a show or the Met opera or whatever. And it's beautiful. It's great to watch, but it's very much a flat 2D experience sort of thing. Whereas this really has the 3D feel of a film, but also giving you those real theatrical elements. The production design, the set design, the costuming, the lighting, the sound design, all this sort of stuff works incongruent with each other of of giving you the best of both worlds. And then that doesn't even, you know, begin to talk about the towering performance of Denzel Washington. When you hear things like Denzel Washington's playing Macbeth, if your ears aren't perking up and being like, this sounds fantastic, then I don't know what kind of movies you like to watch. <laughs> because that's just the, the best idea I've ever yeah. heard. Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand teaming up to do a Macbeth directed by one of the Cohen brothers Obviously, this isn't the Coen brothers, but a Coen brother, but we still get elements of what makes Joel and Ethan such fantastic artists. I will say I thought that the Lady Macbeth character wasn't amazing. There was stuff that was edited out from the text. We didn't really get the the great out-out-damn-spot speech that you know so well from Macbeth, which is a shame. But from what we lose from Lady Macbeth, we gain in a really beautiful and haunting portrayal of the witches and Alex Hassel playing Ross in this really interesting, unique sort of Machiavellian character who is shifting power behind the scenes and how much is he involved in things? Is he actually a raven? Is he a person? What's the deal with all of this? There's so many great questions. And if you're a fan of theater this is definitely probably going to be one of your favorite movies. And I and I don't need to really champion it because you've probably already seen it a bunch of times.
1: I'm with you. I love this movie. Um, this was probably one that it could have been on my top ten. And I I would have put it as an honorable mention, but you you already had it on your list, so I figured we could talk about it here. Um I love Denzel Washington. He's been my favorite actor for a really, really long time. Like I was, I was talking to a friend of mine about this movie and I was saying, like, I remember seeing Denzel. The first movie I ever saw him in was The Hurricane. And I remember seeing it in theaters and he was the first person to ever make me cry in a movie, like in a movie theater. I remember being very, very sad about that because um, Hurricane was a sad movie. But to see Denzel still like knocking it out of the park today, it's incredible. He's so good in it. And like co-sign everything you said about the way that the movie is made, the the set design you know, it is flat sets, theatrical sets, but it is incredibly cinematic. Like you go right into the sets and you dive right into it. And it's absolutely incredible. And, and Catherine Hunter as the witch is um, phenomenal. Like, and I'm glad that she's gotten a lot of praise for it, but you do kind of wish she got some like award recognition because I know that that does count for something. Um, it's just such an incredible movie. And I, I think I said this already in the Oscar um, episodes, but I love the decision to film this in black and white, but digital black and white. Like I feel like doing it on film in black and white was a bit of an obvious choice, but to do it in digital, it make it just adds to the coldness of the story of Macbeth. And yeah, I it's an incredible, incredible movie that I've this one I've actually seen it too. I've, I've rewatched it a number of times. Like sometimes I just have it on in the background because I just want to see Denzel just killing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And we talked about this movie at length in yeah. our Make Remake episode. So if you want to hear us talk more about this movie and compare it to Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, then definitely check that out. I will link to that in the show notes. Now we are on to our third voicemail and this is from our friend Sammy Felchenfeld.
1: Hey, this is Sammy Felchenfeld and my favorite film of 2021 was, to no one's surprise,
0: Dune, a masterpiece of science fiction and the best adaptation, I think, done of the novel so far. Um, Not a whole lot more I can say outside of a podcast I've already done on this,
2: Um, but I'm really looking forward to part two, uh, hopefully next year. Uh, And I think that there is a a recognition of, you know, a return to spectacle um, that doesn't just
1: have to be a superhero movie. Um, Yes, this is an adaptation and some of the best movies sometimes are, Um, and sometimes the original too, but I think that there is a a lot of potential um, with this, uh, you know, with this universe that Denis Villeneuve has created, and, uh, you know, listen to the rest of what I have to say on on another (laughs) episode, many, many episodes looking forward to this movie being released, so uh, that is Dune.
0: So, like Sammy mentioned, we did a make-remake episode comparing this new Dune with David Lynch's Dune, but... This is also your number six pick, Rachel.
1: I love that episode that you guys did together about this. I learned so much um, about Dune and, and the way that he, Sammy, like talks about the, not just the film, but like the story itself. It gave me a much deeper appreciation um, for, again, not just the film, but the story in general and and the novel. And it's, and, and also David Lynch's version, which... um has been, you know, very chastised, and but it's, it's everything that that Samia said. It's just such an incredible movie. Um, the return to form of the spectacle is very, very cool. But I also just love that the movie that people thought was unadaptable was adapted successfully, and I think Denis Villeneuve. How he didn't get nominated for like a director, it still baffles me because what he was able to do and manage and lead his team, like it's it's not an easy feat. and I don't know how many directors out there are able to do what he did with the movie. um it's it's so incredible and I know it like it kind of feels like it's not a complete movie because it's just part one, and we're just just grazing the surface. but to me, that's just. It's exciting, you know. It's exciting the fact that that was just scratching the surface. You know that was that was all that was, um, and so I can't wait for part two as well. Um, same with Sammy. So it's it's an incredible movie. If you're able to see it in IMAX, um, I would highly highly recommend that because the way that Denis builds the film and and the way it looks on an IMAX screen, it just like encompasses you. It just, it, you just really go into the worlds of like Arrakis and all that. it's, it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, I love Dune and I love Sammy for loving Dune because I took, I genuinely really did take a lot from, from that episode that you guys did.
0: Well, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. That was, that was probably one of the easiest episodes I've ever done. because It was basically <laughs> just like, I watch the movies and I'm just going to let Sammy talk.
1: Yeah. Uh, he's, I mean, he's so knowledgeable and it's just not even so knowledgeable. It's yeah. like, he could, because he has such a passion for it um that really came through and it just makes his knowledge that much more interesting like it's not just somebody spouting off some facts like it's someone who yeah. cares about the knowledge that he has and and wanting to share that with people so yeah i, I love that episode though
0: yeah, Sammy. Sammy's a, a crazy intelligent guy. Where like, I don't think he writes notes for things like this. He just <laughs> knows all of this stuff. Like, I don't even think he does research either. He'll like we'll, we'll be we'll be talking when we would hang out and stuff like that, and he would just be able to rattle off all this sort of stuff. It just kind of blows my mind. And and here's me, you know, doing like ten pages worth of notes and research <laughs> and all this sort of stuff for every single discussion that we ever have on movies and, and he's just so smart.
1: <laughs> I love that. It's it's like a, like, a it's just like an organic feel that he has for film, or it yeah. seems,
0: yeah. I wish I loved this movie more. Denis is one of my favorite directors working today. I liked it. I like I love the look of it. I thought the performances were good. I really found the, the intro, the whole political machinations aspect of it was very interesting. But unfortunately, once they arrived on Arrakis, it kind of lost me for a bit until it picked back up again for the battle stuff at the end, which was like a good hour and a bit. So I I, I feel bad. And it was unfortunate because it leaves you, it's such a, a cliffhanger point. Where I kind of watched it, I was like, okay, so I can't really judge this movie until I see part two because I don't know what the story is. I don't know whether he landed this movie or not because we need to see how it all plays out later. So I, I feel bad. Everyone seems to absolutely rave about this movie and, and I'm just kind of in the background being like, eh, it, was, it was good. It was fine.
1: It was <laughs> I, I, get, I, I honestly do get that, that idea of like it doesn't feel like a complete movie like it really doesn't feel like that and so it's it feels like it's almost hard to judge it because it it doesn't it doesn't feel whole yet um but maybe you know hopefully when part 2 comes out which i believe sammy's correct i think it is next year hopefully it's not 2020-24 cuz that would be that feels like a long time away um but yeah. yeah hopefully when that comes out then it'll just be a really nice a nice complete world mm-hmm. and you know However, they decide to continue on, um, if they decide to continue on with the other books, that would be pretty cool, too. I'm looking forward to it, though.
0: (laughs) Well, my number six movie is one that probably doesn't actually really count for this year because it played at festivals and is getting a wide release this year now. But uh, it's my list and I'm going to do what I want. And that is a movie called Official Competition which was directed by Mario Cone, Mariano Cohn and Gaston Dupre. This is a Spanish-language film that stars Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez, which saying those three names, if you're a lover of international cinema, should make you excited. Do those three names get you excited there, Rachel?
1: They do. And I actually, I really wish I had was able to watch this because you watched this at the Vancouver Film Festival, right? I
0: did. Yeah. yes. And I
1: believe it played at TIFF, but it was an in-person only screening. and I didn't manage to fit that into my schedule, if I remember correctly. But you've been on this one for, I think, since you watched it at, at the Vancouver Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been eager to watch it and will watch it whenever it has a wide release. So maybe it'll show up on my 2022 list.
0: Maybe, and I would be so happy if it does. I'm going to give a brief synopsis because I feel like this is probably up there on the movies that people will know the least about. What it's about is there's this old billionaire who is realizing that he doesn't have much of a legacy. You know, he's got bridges named after him. He's got buildings named after him, but the people don't actually care about that. So what he decides to do is he wants to get into the movie producing business and truly make his mark on the art world that way. So he finds uh, a very popular novel, he buys the rights to it, he hires the most influential director working in this day, which is played by Penelope Cruz, who is this super artistic theater director who is very outside the box, is you know very tough, very disagreeable, not very amenable to suggestions, all this sort of thing. And she agrees to do this only if she has complete creative control, but promises that she will make something truly spectacular. And so this billionaire guy goes, you know what, if I want to make my mark in history, I need to allow someone to create beautiful art, so I will do this. So Penelope Cruz, cat. it's a story about these two brothers who are, are fighting with each other, as brothers often do, and sort of how the ties that bind family work. And so we cast... Antonio Banderas and Oscar Martinez except for they are playing actors. Antonio Banderas is basically this pop star actor type of person where he is flamboyant, he cares about how he looks, he cares about looking good and having hot model girlfriends and driving fancy expensive cars and the types of movies he does are, you know, popcorn fare that you could compare it to something like uh, the Fast and the Furious movies or something like that where, you know, there's not a lot of substance to it. On the flip side, Oscar Martinez is an actor who also teaches acting, and we get to see him in action, and he does these like little black box theater workshops where he's very intense and very serious about his craft, and he takes it very seriously. So you, you, you get these three personalities, and you put them all together, and just what happens when they get together. And of course, they clash. Now, this is one of the most purely comedic movies I've seen in the longest time. I spent the entire runtime just absolutely laughing. It is gag after gag after gag. And now this sounds a little ridiculous, but it really works. I was so happy with the way it works because every elaborate setup and gag that they pull off adds to the story and tells you more about who these two people are under the direction of this director. And it, it really is Penelope Cruz putting these two men through the paces of what kind of movie that she wants to make. And and, I, and we talked about it on uh, a recent podcast where I, I was so happy that, uh, that someone else was a fan of it as well. And I don't really want to re- reveal it because – with comedy, it's the element of surprise that works, and and I and I don't want to ruin things, especially for you, Rachel, because I think you'll really find just how funny it is, and and once you do finally watch it, we can talk about which one of the elaborate gags was your favorite.
1: I really can't wait to watch it. Like you, you really have been talking about this for um a while now. Like you've been championing it for mm-hmm. a bit, so I'm I'm very very excited to see it. And I love anytime I get to see Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas like. When they get to do Spanish films, um, they're so good. They're so good. And it's just like, they're the same actor who, like, you know what I mean? It's the same actor that we see in the Hollywood movies, but they're just not given as interesting roles. I think in Hollywood, like they, they tend to, I don't know, be a bit stereotyped maybe. I don't know. But, um, but when yeah. they, when they get to do films in, in Spain, like when they decide to do it, I shouldn't say when they get to, when they decide to do those movies, they're phenomenal. Like they're, they're absolutely amazing.
0: I, I I wish more actors that got their start in their in their home country s- cinema would go back and do it as much as as Cruz and Banderas yeah. do because it's a real treat and they, and they it's like every year they're doing Spanish language films it's not like it's a one-off sort of thing yeah and you know both of them in in North America are just known as beautiful people who get vapid role sort of thing but there's so much depth like go back and read our if we were Oscar voters blog we both picked penelope cruz as one of the best performances of the year i had her twice for both uh official competition and parallel mothers and you had her for parallel mothers like she is just such a fantastic actress and antonio Banderas is the same way uh last year with um with pain and glory the pedro amadovar movie and then back this year with official competition like i'm just constantly blown away by him
1: Yeah, I can't can't wait to watch it. I'll let you know once I do what my thoughts are.
0: Please. Okay, so we're going to move on to my number five pick, which is Sean Baker's Red Rocket. This is a movie that I also saw at the Vancouver Film Festival, and (laughs) I feel like I was probably one of the people in the theater laughing the most. And you saw it, and right away, we're like, we need to do an A24 retrospective episode on this. So we did it right away, basically. And it's one that I feel like I I wish had gotten more attention and I wish A24 had campaigned more for it because I would have loved to see Simon Rex get an Oscar nomination for this. And maybe it was a little too out there or whatnot, but I love this movie. And if you haven't seen it by now, Simon Rex plays this man who is a porn star, former porn star, who returns home to small town, Texas to try to get his life back on track, moves in with his estranged wife starts selling weed, and then uh, starts hitting on and eventually dating a 17-year-old that works at a donut shop before he tries to convince her to eventually get into the pornography business once she turns 18 in two weeks or whatever the timeline is. This is such an interesting movie because we've had a few films this year that deal with age gaps when dating, specifically Licorice Pizza, and this, I feel, handles it a lot better because we know that Mikey Saber the or Simon Rex character is a disgusting creep and Sean Baker still just kind of gives his character room to breathe and us to sort of go on this journey with these characters.
1: I really love this movie. As you said once I saw it I was like we need to do we got to bump this one up. We're not going to wait 5 years before we get to Three Red years. Rock. <laughs> <laughs> like we're we're going to do it right now because It is like, and I guess my one of maybe my bigger frustration with Licorice Pizza was like the only reason that one got the attention it did was because of Paul Thomas Anderson, right? Like it's PTA, so his movie will automatically get more consideration from voters and whatnot. But Red Rocket to me was just like you said, it handles it the best. It handles this, you know, very real idea of, you know, grooming and, um, you know a very illegal relationships uh, but it's it deals with it in a comedic way but without making light of it right like the comedy is in how kind of creepy and like disgusting he is uh and it's it's a beautifully put together film as well like it's just a beautifully shot film um Simon Rex is amazing as you've already said Susanna's Son who plays uh Strawberry, the young girl. She's, she's fantastic in it too. Uh, it's, it's such a great, great movie. And, um, I wish it had taken licorice pizza's spot for everything because goddamn licorice pizza was stupid.
0: <laughs> Stupid movie. Fair enough. Yeah, I I wasn't as crazy about licorice pizza either. I liked it more than you, but not as much as a lot of other people did. And for all the hand wringing that people did over the age discrepancy, yeah. there it was shocking that as dumb as Twitter is, they didn't go after Red Rocket.
1: Uh, I wonder if it's one. Maybe it was definitely more under the radar. But two, I think it's because you know Red Rocket was it shows that it was wrong. Like it was very clear that this is wrong. This is not something we mm-hmm. encourage. Um, whereas licorice pizza, not so much. It, licorice pizza almost gives it a, oh, it was the 70s. That's just how things were. Like, you know what I mean? Like it kind of makes excuses <laughs> for it. Whereas Red Rocket is very blatant of saying, I mean, in Red Rocket's situation is a lot more extreme to be fair to licorice pizza. Like it is, you're talking about um a much larger age gap and as unfair as this might be but the older person in the relationship is a man and the younger person is a a girl um but you're also talking about him trying to get her to go into the porn industry you know which is she's 17 you know so uh, yeah it's um but it's a great movie and i was never a massive sean baker fan i know you're you're pretty um keen on him but uh, this made me more interested to like see whatever he has coming up next like I'm definitely more interested than I was previously
0: nice okay so we're going to hear our next voicemail and that's from Bill Antonio Neonio wheel <laughs> wheel
4: Hi, this is Bill Antoneu, and my favorite movie of 2021 is Drive My Car by Ryosuke Hamaguchi. I happily restate everything good people have said in praise of this movie, the way that its narrative strands combine, the way that it's so intellectually dense while also being so deeply emotional. I love the characters and the setting. I love seeing the world of theater being portrayed because that's something I really miss right now. Uh, For me, the most significant thing about this movie, and it's not a small thing, although it sounds silly, is just the fact that it flew by. It's a three-hour film, and I barely noticed the time. I never checked the time bar on it, which I do all the time, because in lockdown... With the increased levels of stress in the air and the fact that we can't watch movies in theaters, which is, you know, everyone's preferred way to watch them, I find myself watching them alone at home a lot, and it's not a very pleasant experience, and I'm very impatient. And the fact that this film, I never even checked the time, is miraculous, Um, and also because of how well it's made. So, thank you.
0: Oh, I guess I pronounced his name wrong. I'm so sorry, Bill.
1: I like how we formally ended that with thank you. Like, it was a very, like... Speech, speech over <laughs> speech is finished. I enjoyed yes. that. That was good.
0: Speech is over. <laughs> Thank you, Bill, for sending in that. Uh, this is your number five and my number four pick. Rachel, why did you love this movie?
1: I, I think I said this on the podcast already. Like I tried watching it um, back in December. I, I had it and I, and I was trying to watch it. Um, I just wasn't in the right like headspace for it. As much as Bill said, you know, the three hours flew by. I was watching, I think, thirty minutes of it, and I was just not feeling it at all the first time. And but, and the reason I went back to it was because of the Oscars and because it was nominated for so many awards and was a pretty surefire win for at least one category. Um, I went back and I watched it, and I, I really sat down and I, I like turned all my phones and like all my devices off and like just kind of focused in on it. And it is just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Like it's such a delightful film that. I didn't know what it was about. So I didn't read up on, on what it was about. Like I had no idea about the, you know, the scenes with that. It's essentially a movie about communication. That's what I took out of it. Um, And I loved, you know, when they're working on the play to get that together, like I love that one of the, the actresses is is, uh, a mute. So she has to, she signs and, and then, you know, there, there's Korean spoken, there's Japanese and there's Mandarin spoken and, it's just such a beautiful way of bringing together all these different languages, all these different forms of communication and showing like, you know, we can, we can communicate with one another, even if we're not fully understanding exactly the words that we're saying. Um, And there's just something about, I think the fact that the world is getting smaller and smaller and, you know, but yet our differences seem more magnified than ever these days. Uh, For me that like, it just was one of these movies that, sat with me really nicely. Like, it just it left me with a really, really nice feeling. Even though, like, there are, a, you know, a number of sad elements in the film. Um, it just left me feeling, like, happy and more optimistic about the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, so much emphasis has been talking about the car ride scenes. And while they are truly spectacular, I I really connected with all the theater scenes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was was so interesting as a fan of, of Chekhov and and Uncle Vanya. It was so interesting to see this version of a play being put on to the point where I really want to see this version of this. play. Like this sounds so interesting that you have a bunch of different languages and, and it's not language that separates us. it is, it is the human connection that brings us together. Mm-hmm. And, and language is just you know, some barrier that people put up. And the fact that you're able to have this sort of production with multiple languages being spoken, and then you can read the subtitles on screen, it is so beautiful. I've, I've listened... This is the type of movie where after I watch it, I just kind of want to hear other people talk about it. So I've listened to a bunch of other podcasts and read a bunch of reviews, and I just love seeing people talk about this movie because it is so beautiful. I love how the first... 30 to 40 minutes or whatever it is. And then the title sequence comes. So you basically have this whole prologue of a story that if they want to, they could completely cut that out and basically just recap it within less than five minutes of what the backstory was for these characters. But no, we see this backstory and then we get to the movie and then we get to the meat of all this stuff. And there's quite a few moments, despite this being such a, a quiet, intimate contemplative movie, there are quite a few surprises where you're like, wow, I can't believe this is happening and i mentioned off the top there's a few movies on my list that just sit with you and this is one of the movies that just sits with you where you replay scenes and dialogue and story and think about what it all means and how it all connects together and it's and it's just so beautiful to think about and then you get the imagery you know stuff like the the two characters putting their hands through the sunroof with their cigarette yeah. blowing in the wind Very stuff cool. like that or um one, the sign language, what the actress who does sign language signing for her co-star and stuff like that. It's just all so beautiful, and there's so many magical moments in this movie. And and I feel like once every few years, there's a movie that comes out, and I don't think I've heard a single person say anything bad about this. This is this is the type of movie that comes out that just like blows people's minds. I'm I'm thinking back to something like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Parasite. This movie. There's no bad words that could be said about these films.
1: Do you find, though, um, that this isn't the kind of movie you would recommend to everybody? Like, if somebody says oh, of to course you, not. right? Yeah. Like, it's a very particular movie um, for, for a very particular audience, but that audience will eat this up completely. And it's just an amazing movie. If you're able to get to it and find a way into it, you will have, you will take a lot from it. But I can appreciate that it isn't for everybody. And there, you know, people could say, oh, this is like one of those artsy movies, which it is, but it's, it's a very, very well done one and an incredibly beautiful one.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you told me, You know, I just mentioned it. If you tell me that you really enjoy Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I'm going to say you should watch Drive My Car. You'll probably enjoy it because, one, you don't have an issue with subtitles. Two, you don't have an issue with quiet, subdued movies as well. And if you say, hey, my favorite movie is Endgame. What was your favorite movies for this year? I'm not going to recommend Drive My Car to them.
1: (laughs) You said it to me, actually. Sorry, Marvel. (laughs) I'm Not even going to wade into that. Um, You said to me, that when I was – Saying to you, like, I just had a tough time getting into it the first, the first time I watched. I think I watched, tried watching it maybe actually twice before I actually really sat down and, and was very intentional about watching it. Um, and you s- described it to me as like, it's like a vibe. Like the movie, it's like a vibey movie. Um, and it mm-hmm. very much so is. It, and it's, uh, it's a very positive vibe, which I like. Because it doesn't seem like it would be a positive movie. But I, I found it very, very positive and very hopeful.
0: Yes, I, I think hopeful is a great way to describe yeah. it because it is, it's is—it's so much about, you know, much like how loners, is want, people wanting to be alone, Drive My Car is about a movie who want to have connections with other people, even if they have barriers or guards up. Yeah, definitely. All right, so we're going to move on to our next movie, which is your number
1: four pick. All right, so this was one of the movies that got knocked out of my top three um, because of another movie. and. I like watched this back in May of last year, something like that. I effing love it. It's nobody, Bob Odenkirk, uh, nobody. And it's written by Derek Colstead, who wrote the John Wick uh, films. So it does have that element, to like that idea, that feel of John Wick, um, but it isn't John Wick. Like, it, it, I mean, it, should, it does share some elements. I will admit it is Bob Odenkirk's John Wick, but it is so much fun and I love a, a really good action movie. Like I'm, I'm all in for when you can give me really good action sequences, really, really good fight sequences. Like I really appreciate those types of films um, and the, the work and the artistry that goes behind it. I can accept that, you know, these big action movies, sometimes the story there's holes and there's, you know, it's not maybe the most well-formed um, premise, but this for me is like it's kind of on the I don't want to say the opposite end of Drive My Car, but it's just this is another like type of movie to that you can really appreciate, and it's not necessarily a vibey movie. It's not necessarily a movie that's gonna you know change your view on the world, but it is one that will absolutely entertain you. It is funny. It is smart. It's just got I, I cannot stress enough how good the action scenes are and how good Bob Odenkirk is in this movie, um, and I love it. And I know you haven't seen it yet. I say yet, I don't think you're ever going to watch it, but it's such, it's just such a fun movie and it's, it's everything that I want from an action movie. Um, It's not just, you know, with all due respect to Michael Bay, it's not just, you know, blow them out, shoot them up kind of movies. There is, there is a lot of intelligence to it and um, the camera work, the film, the score, like everything about it, it just comes together really nicely and it's an excellent, excellent movie.
0: I I wouldn't say that I'll never watch it because you know, I quite like the first John Wick movie. I haven't seen the sequels yet. And oh I really God. like movies like Atomic Blonde. have
1: you not seen the sequels <laughs> of John Wick? Those are so good.
0: <laughs> I heard the second one wasn't very good. Oh, I so would that's why I
1: highly disagree with that. I think the second really? the okay. second one I know this isn't about John Wick, but the second John Wick for me, I find it difficult to say which one I prefer more, the first or the second one. Like, I really, really enjoy the second one a lot. The third one is the one that got a little bit jumpy-sharky for me, but yeah.
0: Okay, okay. But yeah, I I, I did really like both John Wick and Atomic Blonde because of how great the action was, Mm -hmm. how natural the scenes felt, and exciting they were, and how they actually added to the story and the character. So I won't say I'll never watch nobody, just it hasn't been on the top of my list. Uh so that's the only real reason why i haven't gotten around to it cuz i've wanted to watch other stuff first.
1: Understandable. Understandable. This is a tight 90 minutes. I'm going to make my claim here. It's a tight 90 minute movie and it, I like that. it it just it flies by, like it genuinely just flies by and it's just fun. Like i think um i mentioned Michael Bay before uh and he has a new movie out called Ambulance which i watched and nobody is is a lot better than ambulance but there is something to be said about right now just wanting to watch movies that are slightly i don't kind of mindless they're just fun like they're just really good entertainment and a little bit ridiculous the ridiculous part is more of a michael bay thing um nobody to me it's just like i'm i'm just repeating myself at this point but like it's the action scenes for (laughs) me are the just so so good and you know they're in touch. Bob Odenkirk, he's an older guy, right? Like he is an older dude, but he is meant to be this kind of undercover, covert other life. He had an agent, like uh, another life as a as a real badass. And but he he still acts like he's. They're not throwing in like a twenty year old stunt double to take over. Like the, it is very in keeping with him, which makes it much more realistic. And I think that that's what makes action movies great. I think you you talked about Fast and Furious before. Sometimes we can get a little bit, a bit much with action movies, but nobody for me is just, it's exactly what I want from an action movie. Thank awesome.
0: you. I'm going right. to, like Bill, thank Let's you. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to your number three pick.
1: Oh, number three. Okay. So like in the opposite of that, of nobody, kind of on the other end, closer to a drive my car, which is Malcolm and Marie. This movie came out in, what, January, I think? It was on a Netflix. Um, and it w- hasn't really been talked about the rest of the year because it was eligible for the Oscars last year because they had that kind of funky calendar shift. Um, but Malcolm and Marie, it is a two-hander. It's David John Washington. John David Washington. John um, David? <laughs> I was like, David John, that doesn't sound right. John David Washington, uh, who is Denzel's son, and uh, Zendaya. Zendaya or Zendaya? Zendaya. Zendaya.
0: Uh, I think Zendaya. Zendaya, yeah. I don't know.
1: Um, and it's about... John David Washington plays a, a filmmaker, a director, who's just came home from his uh, big premiere, and Zendaya plays his partner. Um, and the movie is just... It's a big talking movie. It's just a, a lot of back and forth. It takes place only in their really, really lovely house in L.A. Um, and it is kind of on his best night, you know, like the, the night of releasing his film to the world, you know, him and, and Malcolm and Marie, the two of them basically say the the things to each other that you kind of feel like you don't come back from that in a relationship. You know, they had a lot of stuff boiling underneath and, you know, we never really get a resolution as to do they stay together, do they break up, but it's just, it's a fight that happens in an evening, which I'm sure all of us have experienced. And you just say the things that you probably are saying in the heat of the moment, but are also things that are difficult to take back the next day. I loved, I think the two performances are absolutely amazing. It is one of the most beautifully shot films um, in the last few years, in my opinion. It's a uh, Sam Levinson, who does the, uh, what's that show, Euphoria? Zendaya. And it's black and white. It's grainy. It's film. It's amazing. I know that it kind of got a bit of a bad rap um, as being very pretentious, but I like that. Like I kind of like the pretension in it. I think there are some amazing back and forth. I know you and I, we did this on the our blog post last year for If We Were Academy Voters, the first time we did it. And we both mm-hmm. were kind of of the consensus that there's that scene between them um, when Marie is in the bathtub and basically calling Malcolm out for saying like, you know, you didn't give credit to me for it being your inspiration for your film. And he's like, oh, you think you inspired me and then lists off all these other women who are actually his influence, not her. And that, I like, love I love that. that scene. Like we're talking about scenes um, when we're talking about Pig. And for me, that was um, Ann in Drive My Car. And for me, that scene in, in Malcolm and Marie was just heartbreaking and Like it just sticks you in the heart, you know, like it's one of those that it's, Mm -hmm. it's a very, it's very quiet, but it's incredibly harsh. And I love that movie. And I feel like people really judged it harshly and undeservedly. So,
0: yeah, I, I really like this movie too. And we, I feel like we're two of the only people that really dug it. It didn't make my my list. I also purposely removed it from contention. This, Juice and the Black Messiah, The Father, Minari, Mm -hmm. are all movies that technically came out in 2021, but because they were eligible for awards season last year, I kind of just axed it and was like, you know, I'm not even going to include them. So if I did have those four movies, they would probably, some of them would have made my list. I think overall, Malcolm and Marie was my 25th favorite movie of the year, but I still rated it very highly. And I think the biggest thing a lot of people did not get was this movie is satirical. It's supposed to be funny. People took it far too seriously. And I think the main thing that started out was uh, critics being called out. And so critics were the first ones that were like, no, this movie is terrible. They made fun of us. And then everyone kind of jumped on that and then just went overboard with how over the top they believe these characters to be f- completely forgetting that this movie is funny. This movie is hilarious. You're not supposed to take these characters seriously. Like, that's the whole point of it is how character characteristic, blah, I can't even talk right now, <laughs> how much of a caricature these two people are. Yeah. And and it just got completely forgotten. All the discourse was about, no, this movie hates critics, so we don't like it. And I was just like, what, what is wrong with you people not being able to f- take a frigging joke?
1: Yeah. Or even if it is really like, not to be able to take criticism, your critics like take some criticism. You know, even if you're if it, if they didn't take it as a joke, it's like it's not the end of the world that somebody criticizes your profession. I um, know, right? But I also want to point out um, Malcolm and Marie and nobody. I didn't mention this with nobody. Both of them have amazing soundtracks, and I love movies that I like. Progressively, I'm starting to realize that. I, when a movie uses soundtrack versus score, I'm all about it. Because if you can do it properly, um, it really adds to the movie. So nobody in Malcolm and Marie, both of them, use soundtrack beautifully.
0: So we're going to move on to my number three pick now. And this is a Canadian film called The Righteous, directed by Mark O'Brien. I interviewed Mark for the, the podcast uh, earlier last year. And I love this. Uh, I watched this, I think it was during Fantasia Fest, Mm -hmm. and it's this black and white quasi-religious horror film where it's about this couple, older couple, who are still grieving the loss of their daughter and... This man is sort of, he's the main character really sort of dealing with this grief and loss and figuring out how to move forward with his life. And suddenly a stranger appears in the middle of the night to them who appears to be injured. So he takes this young man in who is Mark O'Brien, the director, playing a role in it as well. And slowly we get uh, some revelations and about what happened in their lives previous to when the movie started, who they are as people, especially this man played by Henry Zerny. And it, it just, it just one that like really makes you think and feel about how you live your life and what does it mean to be a good person? And, and, it's so interesting. As someone who's not religious, watching this movie, I loved it because there was so much religious overtones to it—not just undertones, but overtones—and I loved the way, the approach of it all. And it's got this real spooky feel to it. It's another black and white movie, just like Malcolm and Marie, just like Tragedy Macbeth. It was a great year for black and white films okay. overall. I, I really—I was so happy that it, this aesthetic was making a comeback in some truly striking imagery that just haunts you. You know, there's this foreboding tree that just looms over this house and it was something that we talked about in our interview and that was basically finding that tree was the the genesis of realizing that that's the location that they needed to shoot at and and it was a movie i really loved and it's it's basically a three hander between henry zerny mark o'brien and then mimi kuzik who plays the wife and the three of them just are spellbinding there. There's one scene in in particular where there is a bit of, um, I don't want to call it a jump scare, but, uh, something that may or may not be real happens. And it is, is one of my favorite scenes. It's, it's, it's an argument between Henry Zernian and Mark O'Brien's characters. And I just loved it. I can't remember. Did you end up seeing this movie?
1: I did. And I didn't like it as much as you, uh, not nearly as much as you, I should say. Like it, I found it interesting. I like the aesthetic of it. Um, I, I just wasn't really grabbed by the story of it, to be honest. I thought the performances were amazing. Um, and like I said, I, I think it shot really, really well. And I love that they use, it was shot in Newfoundland, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, so I love the, I like the landscape that they use. Like it was very, very barren and um, no offense to Newfoundland, but yeah, that's just the way it is. Um, and it, all of those, like technically speaking, I love the movie, but it just as, as a story, it didn't really do it for me. But Mark O'Brien was amazing in it, too. He's, he's uh, as we've discovered, he's we've be- both become just massive fans of Mark O'Brien in the last like year or so yeah. of you know, realizing how many things that he's done and how wide ranging his work has been, too. Like, I discovered, I didn't discover, I realized that he was in Hannibal, which has been one of my like new favorite shows of the last few years. Yeah. He just shows up in a few in an episode and that makes sense because they did film Hannibal in Toronto. So it did grab a lot of Canadian actors. Um, but yeah, he's, he's phenomenal and he he is very, very good in it. Just, yeah, I guess just wasn't for me.
0: Yeah. I I'm, I've really been championing this movie a lot and I'm very excited that, Arrow is releasing this on Blu-ray, and Mm -hmm. so when it does come out, I am definitely going to be buying a copy of it because it it was such a fantastic film, and I'm a big fan of it. But we'll move on now to your number two pick, and then jumping all the way back, (laughs) my number 10 pick, which is what, Rachel? It's the
1: worst person in the world. This is the movie that kind of screwed my top three up. My un- my unmovable top three, as I had said before. But um, I watched this <laughs> yeah. movie and I completely fell in love with it. It's uh, it's a Norwegian film uh, that w- did it win? Um, God, the Oscars were not that long ago, and I can't even remember. Did it win? No, no, no.
0: Drive my car won. Drive
1: my car. No, but did it win the no Coda one adapted screenplay? Yes. Okay,
0: sorry, yes. <laughs> I was trying to remember. And it was original screenplay, original. Sorry, uh, yes, which. Yeah. Which was uh, not won by that. That was one. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. I'm blanking on what it was. Literally, the Oscars I'm were Belfast. not that long ago
1: and we can't even remember. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyways, the, the movie is about Julie, uh, a young woman who is, you know, trying all these different types of careers. Like I love the beginning like that. It's broken up into the film is structured as a book. Which you've mentioned, you you were talking about that in our Oscars episode, um, and in what is considered the prologue. Like I really like that sequence of her just jumping from career to career to career, which is something that I can very much so um, commiserate with. And then you know it's it's a ba- basically it's a breakup story, but you're looking at it not from the perspective of the person who's been broken up with, which is typically what we see in films um it is the person who did the breaking up and we see her go into a new relationship and you know all these it's an incredibly relatable movie for i think a certain age group because so many of us will go through that kind of jumpiness um in life and it's performed amazingly well um the entire cast is excellent it's uh, made very, very well. Like there's some really cool scenes. Um, Another cool smoking scene, not that we condone smoking on this Mm -hmm. podcast, but some very cool Mm -hmm. scenes with cigarettes. And it's just one of those that I remember finishing watching it and just like, again, the theme of a top 10 list, which is it's a movie that just stuck with me. And one that I am excited to kind of like watch it for years to come because it's, it's funny. It's moving. um, It's sad. It's happy. Like it's, it's a whole, lot of emotions and it's probably in my opinion one of the best coming of age movies I've seen in a very 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 long time and i to me it's like an instant classic of of that genre mm
0: mm-hmm. yeah this this movie does so many interesting things you, you you talked about the the sort of narrative approach it has it's got a narrator in it as mm-hmm. well We've got these large time jumps where it's not like it's a, it's completely linear. We've got some really interesting. I don't I don't want to know what else to call it. The but the time freeze moment mm. is just so beautiful and stunning, and it's just everything about this is, is amazing. Like I, I just feel like I'm going to be repeating you and repeating everyone else that loves this movie. This is this is such a great film, and in a year that Drive My Car doesn't exist worst person in the world would be the, the the most well-known international film of the year. And it would have absolutely won best international film at the Oscars and probably maybe even would have made the cut for best picture as well. That's how good this movie was. I've never seen any other Joachim Trier films, but it really does make me want to go back and watch some of them. But I am very excited that uh, Renat Reince who plays Julie in this film has just been cast in the new Joe Talbot movie yeah. who Joe Talbot previously did last black man in San Francisco, which is one of my favorite E24 films also being made by a 24 produced by them called the governess. So I'm very excited that we're going to see more of Renat Reince, uh, in the future and some English language work as well.
1: Yeah. I, she's so good in it. Like she's so enigmatic. Like she she's got a real vibrancy to her on screen. Um, and it like talking about um, Trier movies. This is my first one as well, but apparently this is a part of like, I don't know if it's an official trilogy, but it's like the Oslo trilogy. So I'm very keen to actually watch the other two and um, see how they all kind of come together. So yeah, I, this is such a great movie and, and you're absolutely correct. And in a year that drive my car doesn't exist, um, this one would have picked up. And to be honest, as much as I love drive my car, if this had taken best, uh, international and had taken I it's just, I mean it the, there's not only one spot in best picture for international films like there can be more than one um, international film but I would have been absolutely like you wouldn't have been upset if this movie had won instead of drive my car because they're both they're both really excellent movies
0: mm-hmm. and, and looking at your list you have uh, three of the five movies from this year's international film car- category uh, that made the cut for you this one drive my car and Flee.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, international film was like, it was a really strong category this year. Same. And I mean, you say flea, like documentary was also a really, really strong category this year. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. Probably
1: better, more interesting categories than best picture ended up being. So um, it always is. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've, we've discussed that too, but this year in particular, I feel like both of those categories were just so strong and there wasn't a lot to be mad about if, if somebody, if another film had won instead of the actual winners, like all of them were just such great movies.
0: Mm -hmm. 100%. All right. So now we are on to my number two film, which is going to be a bit of a, a divisive one for, I think some people. And that is Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. I also saw this movie at the Vancouver international film festival. This is the third one that made the cut for me. It was a great festival for me. And I just really love this coming-of-age story. I know a lot of people are are like, oh, it's been done before. We've seen better versions of it. Uh, It's overly sentimental, sappy. The performances aren't that great, blah, blah, blah. I don't care about any of that. This movie connected with me. I thought it was funny. I thought it was heartwarming. I thought it was heartbreaking. I thought it was really beautiful to look at. And I really loved all the performances. You know, specifically, uh, I I really want to shout out Kieran Hines, who played the grandfather. I thought he really shone in this film, but overall everyone I thought was putting in great work. You had Jude Hill, who is the surrogate for little Kenneth Branagh, Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balfe as the parents, Judy Dench as the grandmother. Everyone was, was fantastic in this and I really loved it. And it's frustrating that there was so much backlash to it after during the festival run, there was nothing but praise for this movie. I, I luckily got to see this pretty early in its, um, exposure to people and and I was able to kind of jump on the bandwagon and be like yes this is amazing but unfortunately once it kind of came out to Netflix and more and more people were seeing it that's when the backlash started happening and what looked like the original frontrunner runner for best picture it really dropped down and, and probably was you know maybe the number four or number five overall depending on how the preferential ballots all sort of shook out in the end this was I know you saw it and I know you don't love it as much as i did but i i do believe that you did enjoy this one right Oh, i
1: loved it like i i really do love the movie okay, and good. it's it is one that um my original top 10 i believe it was at like number eight or something like that and it was just the inclusions of worst person in the world drive my car and i think another one at least those two though that kind of knocked um belfast out of my top 10 um I love the movie. I I I'm with you. I'm the, it was very frustrating to see people turn against the movie. Cause I'm like, I'm not saying it is the greatest thing to ever hit cinema, but it is a good movie. And there was some weird vendetta people had against it. And I, maybe it's, I, I actually don't even know what it was. Like maybe people just thought it was too sweet. It was too, whatever, but um, you know, it, I can take the criticism that it's about a very, very dark time in um, Northern Ireland and and the Republic's history. But th- the point is it was seen through the eyes of a child. So it's never going to be that dark. And I just, I love to the story of Kenneth Branagh, um, the way that he came about writing this movie was because of COVID. And it was because of, you know, the world shutting around at, um, around him, all of us at, at some point we're feeling very introspective and maybe very reflective as well. And I think, you know, he clearly felt that and wrote something that was very, very personal to him. And I'm, I always love that when I, you can see a movie that is clearly a very personal work for a director, um, especially cause he wrote it as well. Uh, oh, this is what got original screenplay. Wasn't it? It was Belfast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, I'm really into that. Like when I, when you can see the personal passion that somebody has for a film um, for their own work, I like, I'm, I'm all about it. So I agree. I think that it was, it's been very unfairly judged. I don't know what people's problem is, um, but it's, it's an incredible movie for me. You said, you said Kieran Hines was your standout for me. It was Katrina Balfe. I think she's phenomenal in it and she really strikes the tone of just how difficult of a decision that was for families to make at that time. Um, You know, whether you leave your home like that, that's your home and it's not an easy thing to just say, I'm going to leave home because things are rough here, but you have children and you don't know what, how things are going to turn out. So the, I mean, the movie is set just before the troubles become very troubling. I shouldn't make light of it, but um, it was, it was, you know, it was at the time that you kind of were either in or you're out and I said this before in another episode that we did and we talked about Belfast, but there is an end card to the film and it was Kenneth Branagh just dedicating the movie to, to those who left, those who stayed and those whose lives were lost. And I think that was such a beautiful way to end the movie because, you know, it's easy enough for all of us to sit around and be like, Oh, this is what we would have done. But it's a, it was a really, really tough decision um, for people at the time. And um, for me, that's like Katrina Belf was someone who really drove that point point home really, really nicely.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you there, and I'm, I'm happy that you, you enjoyed this as much as I did as well, mm-hmm. so I'm glad that I did that. So, now we're going to move on to our last voicemail, and that is from Stephanie Pryor.
2: You want to hear a story about what my favorite movie of 2021 is? It's not that long, but it's full of suspense. Zola is a wild ride, with each new scene building in craziness and in stakes. To the point of where if you don't know the story, you can't fathom how it's going to end. Taylor Page and Riley Keough are brilliant together, fully transforming into their characters and pulling you straight into their world and never letting you go. The pacing and editing of this film will have you on the edge of your seats. And it doesn't hurt to look at all the pretty ladies. So be sure to check out Zola for a very fun and very terrifying watch.
0: So there we have Zola, Steph's pick for her favorite movie. This is a movie I really enjoyed. It is so fun and inventive. Uh, it didn't make my my top ten list, but I still put Jinzika Bravo as one of my nominees for best director in our in our blog that we did blog post that we did because I loved just how in control of this film that she was and how original and innovative it was of a movie based on a Twitter thread. Uh, was this one that you liked, Rachel? Right, I Jill? did
1: like it. Um, I don't think I was as into it when I first saw it, but I think as time went on, I really enjoyed it. I think, like you said, Janixa Bravo, I think she's she tackled a really, really difficult story um, and incorporated the Twitter elements really, really well. Like I found that very impressive what she was able to do. Um, also, shout out to Steph for that it was very good production value on her... Uh, on her her voice note i really enjoyed that but yeah zola is a cool movie and it did kind of go a little bit under the radar this year didn't it it wasn't it wasn't maybe not as big but a24 has a weird way of marketing their movies i find and they didn't really push zola
0: by weird you mean terrible
1: yeah i mean right now there's the movie everything everywhere all at once they're doing a really good job with that one um and i don't know Well, I know why because it's a great movie, but like I don't understand why movies like Red Rocket, Zola, even Tragedy and Macbeth, like I don't understand why they just kind of let those just you know like sit down. Because I think Zola is actually a really good contender for adapted screenplay because it's Twitter. Like that's incredible to me that you're able to do something like that. So yeah, Zola is a cool movie. Mm. It's shot really beautifully as well as Steph said.
0: Yeah, I, I was a big fan of that, and I'm glad uh, Steph was able to talk about it, and so that gave us a chance to to briefly mention it as well, because it is a very interesting and fun movie. Now we are on to our final picks. Rachel, what is your number one film?
1: Um, This has been an unmovable movie for me. The second I saw it, I think I already threw it up to number one, and it hasn't changed, and I saw it last August, I want to say. Uh, it's a movie called Nine Days. It is directed by Edson Oda. It is his first film. Um, He wrote it and directed it. It's his debut. It is a movie about an arbiter of souls played by Winston Duke. I don't know why I'm saying it so dramatically. It's played by Winston Duke, um, (laughs) who is amazing. And he's, you know, he people know him best as M'Baku from Black Panther. Um, This is a completely different role for him. He plays Will, as I said, as an arbiter of souls and it takes place in not the afterlife, but it's in the before life. And the idea is he amongst like, there's a ton of them. We don't ever see how many there are, but we see a few other people in the same role as him um, are monitoring people on earth. And those are the souls that he picks to get the chance to be born and have the chance to actually go live a life on earth. Um, and there's, you know, he's got all these analog TV, like old school TV sets set up in his house. And that's how he watches the perspective of, of the people he picks and he gets to watch their life and he takes notes. And, um, one of the people that he picks who he felt very strongly about and has a very, a deeper connection with that person than he had with other souls, uh, dies unexpectedly. And he is now tasked with finding a new person to fill that TV space. Um, and that's where you get uh, a parade of people coming through who are essentially interviewing for this job. And, and it's a, a job process that takes or an interview process that takes over nine days. That's where the movie gets its title from. Um, and you get people like Tony Hale, Zazie Beads, Bill Skarsgård. Um, I think those Benedict Wong is also in it. He's not one of the interviewees. He's Will's assistant. Um, And it's just a movie that kind of goes through. Like the, my biggest takeaway from it was how lucky we are to kind of have the life that we have. And not just in terms of, you know, the wealth or the privilege that you're born into, but just the fact that you were even chosen to be alive. If you want to take the premise as being, Fact, like this idea that our existence is incredibly improbable. Um, We're like a lottery system. It just happens that you got a shot at living in this time period for however many years. Um, and the movie isn't sanctimonious about you know saying you have to live life to the fullest. You have to do this with your like make an impact, um, change the world. It's not like that at all. It's just saying recognize the fact that the fact that you're even existing is incredibly lucky and do with it what you want you know do with it what you will and the inspiration for this film came from Edson Oda's own personal life who had an uncle when he was uh when Edson was I think 11 or 12 and his uncle committed suicide and obviously that had a profound impact on him and it led him to write something like this and when you know that fact nine days takes on a very very different meaning so I really love this movie again. It's obviously it's my number one um, and it's one that has stuck with me. I've seen it a million times now since um, it was released and I've recommended it to probably everybody. And uh, like I said, only one person I know has really come back and said, yeah, like it connected with me too. So I can appreciate it's not for everybody, but for me, it's just, it's a really, really beautiful movie. Um, And the performances are amazing as well. And it shot really, really nicely uh, technically speaking, but yeah, it's the story for me that, that just kind of gets
0: me. I feel bad that I still haven't seen this. (laughs) I know you've been harping on me all year to get around to watching it and I still haven't. And I feel terrible. It's your number one movie and I really should have done my homework. So I'm sorry, Rachel. To be
1: honest, I didn't know if you had seen it. I haven't asked you because I thought, what if you watch it and you really did like it? And that's why you haven't mentioned it to me, but okay. So you just, you just haven't <laughs> you seen I'd it. be worried about
0: disappointing. I really, you. I
1: literally was like, I'm not even going to ask him because it's one of those movies that, you know, sometimes you can watch a movie and if enough people don't like it, you start questioning yourself a little bit. I actually did that for for this mm-hmm. movie. I did question myself a little bit. I was like, is this movie not as good as I think it is? So I rewatched it again. I'm like, no, it's effing brilliant. It's just one that I guess is, is not going to hit every, like I I had a few friends who had very different interpretations of the film. Um, and if I had that interpretation, I might be a bit wonky on the movie as well, but um, it just really worked for me. It was just one that really spoke to me on many different levels. Um, and I think being in COVID and like lockdown and all that kind of stuff that probably added to it because when I watched it, the world was in a very odd spot. I mean, we're still in a very odd spot today, but yeah, it, it's just, it's a movie that came at like the perfect time for me. And if you ever get a chance to watch it, Dakota, I would obviously recommend it.
0: Okay. I, I will eventually get to (laughs) that. All right. Now we're moving on to my number one pick. And this was Belfast was my number one for most of the year since I saw it in the fall and it just stayed there. I was like, I'm fine with this being my number one, but like, I feel like I need a stronger number one. And then On a whim, I was like, you know what? This just came out. I'm going to watch it. I'm excited about it. The Last Duel from Ridley Scott. I watched it and was absolutely knocked over. I loved this movie. Now, a lot of people are comparing it to Rashomon, the Akira Kurosawa film, because it takes a story and tells it from multiple people's perspectives about how they interpreted things, how they saw things, how they remembered things, all this different stuff. But it's a little bit different because whereas Rashomon literally told the same story four times and just showed that story, this, despite the fact that we're getting different perspectives, we're getting what happened before, what happened after, the story continues, it flows. I love the way this film is structured because every time things happen, it changes everything completely. And by the time we get to the last viewpoint, which is from Jodie Comer's character, everything just really comes to a head and knocks you over this. This is the the perfect movie to analyze and break down the effects of things like toxic masculinity, um, things about believing survivors, what we need to do to support people, what are wrong ways to support people that have gone through traumatic events, a whole bunch of different things. But, At the end of the day, this comes down to an impeccable story crafted by uh, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Nicole Hall Center, Ridley Scott's direction, and then the performances from Damon, Adam Driver, and Jodie Comer. The three of them just put an absolute clinic of performances in how you can film a scene three different ways and have three different interpretations and all of them be good and interesting ways to deliver their character. And then also shout out to Ben Affleck who <laughs> shows up as uh, the biggest douchebag in the world and nails it. And I am so happy. His haircut, I know everyone's making fun of this, his blonde bowl cut in blonde goatee. I loved it. It worked for me.
1: It worked. And I, I also appreciate that affleck just was boston it doesn't matter as middle age france it's fine he is a boston <laughs> boy through and through that's just how it's gonna be um i really love this movie too i remember watching it and again this is another movie that had a weird backlash to it because there was a rape scene that was shown twice and i'm not good watching sexual violence in films like i i do you know very much i think rightly so i don't know if you kind of take joy in those scenes. That's kind of weird, but um, I do struggle watching those. But um, to me, it was very necessary for the movie to do, to show it in the way that they showed it. And Jodie Comer, for me, Jodie Comer is right next to Denzel Washington for me as my favorite performances of the year. Um, She's so good in this and she has the task of, you know, making the smallest little changes in her facial expressions like an eyebrow raise here like an eye narrowing there to really show the difference between the perspectives um when they when they tell the three different stories um or the same story three different ways and i it was such a shame to me that she didn't get the recognition she deserves but i i'm with you i think last rule is an amazing movie um i really like the sound design on this movie which i found really random but that was something that really stuck out to me um like the fire crackling. And then, you know, you had the chainmail and the swords and all that kind of stuff. It was, it's a really good movie and was not the Ridley Scott movie that ended up taking the, I guess the, the, what do you call it? Like the critics mantle. Like that was Gucci for some reason was the one that they decided to praise that one over last duel. Um, but I, I really like last duel. It's just so frustrating. It is, it is very, very frustrating. Cause I think last duel is by far a better movie. Um, and it's a, I think a real return to form for Ridley Scott. Like I, I haven't really liked a movie of his in a little while, um, but this one was, I, yeah, I was all into it, and it's, it's, it's a great, great movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. It was, it was very frustrating that House of Gucci got all the recognition mm-hmm. when this was a far superior film, and it sort of seems like. People just decided not to watch it because almost everyone seemed to universally loved it. The problem was no one saw yeah. it, which was so frustrating. Well, it was also people. But I, I'm right with you.
1: Sorry, I was just gonna say it was like it was people hearing this backlash and jumping onto the backlash and and but I'm like, have you seen the movie though? And they're like, no. So I'm like, if, if you haven't seen the movie, how can you say it? because then once they saw it, a lot of people were like, oh, I was ready to hate it, and then they watched the movie, and it's incredible because it is a very very good movie and. I don't know. It just kind of got lost in some weird online discourse.
0: Yeah, it's fine. There is a, there's a tweet that uh, not long after I watched it, I saw it where uh, someone was like uh, putting the movie on. Haha, look at these stupid haircuts. (laughs) Me 20 minutes later, I will do anything for you, my liege. (laughs) That
1: just shows. I mean, I know, I know we go into movies with certain expectations depending on, The filmmaker, the actors, maybe what we've heard about it beforehand, but like give a movie a shot and you might be very, very surprised. Like you never know.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I I love the righteous indignation that Matt Damon had as Sir Jean de Carouge. He was so good at battling Adam Driver, who was able to really do a fantastic two-faced performance that didn't feel like he was doing a two-faced mm-hmm. performance where you you really sort of felt the nuances of a man who just believed he was, you know, going about his career in life in a way that you should, and you should use your connections mm-hmm. to advance and things like that. And how it really irked Matt Damon's character, which is so fantastic. But I think I really want to highlight, there's a scene later in the movie after, uh, Matt Damon's wife, Jodie Comer, Marguerite de Carrouge, uh, is in the middle of accusing Adam Driver's character, Jacques Lagrige, uh, of raping her, and what that sort of the the sort of shame it's bringing to her family, and and all this sort of uh, I don't want to call it media hailstorm, but it basically sort of is like the court of public opinion mm-hmm. all turning against their family, and there's this fantastic really depressing scene between Jodie Comer and Matt Damon's mother. So Mm. Jodie Comer's mother-in-law where she's like, yeah, it happens to all of us and you just kind of have to deal with it. And it's just like such a gut punch moment of the reality that happened to women from that era and not just that era that continues Mm -hmm. of how many women face sexual violence and how you can put up a fight and, demand justice and all the sort of things. But at the end of the day, it's going to end up causing the victim far more trouble than probably they want to actually deal with. And so you have women like this mother-in-law who are like, yeah, it happens. You just got to deal with it. And it just sort of knocks you over of like, how can anyone live a life like that?
1: Like she's very matter of fact about it. it's like, it's like pointing the finger at Marguerite saying like, why are you making a big fuss about this? Like, relax, like is basically what she's saying. Like, relax, like calm down. Mm -hmm. This is just, this is just life. Like this is what happens. And you're right. It's an absolute gut punch. And I love that they included that scene. I think that, and it just kind of goes to show it's like things haven't changed nearly as much as we would have hoped that they would from middle ages, France to today. Um, But I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I completely agree with you. What you said before about that, about Matt Damon um, in his performance, like, I know he's kind of gone, had a bit of backlash himself uh, over the last few years. And I think last year he actually came out with two very, very good performances. Like last duel, he's amazing as just this pathetic whiny husband. Who's like this, like he's real little man syndrome. Like that's like a hundred percent what he is. And he also was great in a movie called Stillwater, which that came and went very, very fast. And the movie's not the best movie, but he's great in it. And, I like it is kind of funny to me that Matt Damon, who was once one of the biggest movie stars, uh, is kind of housing a, a like uh, dealing with a little bit of backlash uh, at for him as an individual. But he he's had some pretty great performances um, last year that have gone relatively unnoticed. I would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I agree, and. I I don't know what else to say. Like, it's unfortunate that this movie wasn't up for every Oscar imaginable. So I will settle to just having to continually advocate (laughs) for its greatness. And while it's similar to Rashomon and while it's different than Rashomon, I I think it's great that, you know, people are talking about two great movies. Like, Absolutely. All right, so there you have it. Those are our 10 favorite films from the past year. Rachel, do you want to run through your list uh, just so everyone is aware in order how it all shook out for you?
1: Number 10, uh, we have Flea. And then at number nine is Aloners. Number eight is Pig. Number seven, Saloon. Number six is Dune. Five is Drive My Car. Four is Nobody. Three, Malcolm and Marie. Number two is The Worst Person in the World. And my number one favorite movie of 2021 is Nine Days.
0: For me, my number 10 is The Worst Person in the World. Nine is Pig. Eight is Nightmare Alley. Seven is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Six is Official Competition. Five is Red Rocket. Four is Drive My Car. Three is The Righteous. Two is Belfast. And my number one film of 2021 was The Last Duel. Now, do you have any honorable mentions you want to just kind of shout out there that uh, that came close to making your cut and... And you just want to make sure that people know what great films you also really love this year.
1: Yeah, so in addition to, like, Tragedy Macbeth, Red Rocket, Last Duel, those were all ones. Belfast, like, those were all ones that could have made my top ten. But um, I didn't choose those other all of mentions because I saw them on your list. So the ones that I'm going to shout out are a documentary, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which I know both of us loved. It was a mm-hmm. South by Southwest, I believe. That's where we both saw it last year. It was, yeah. Yeah. Um, documentary about it was like a four hour documentary about folk horror and it's incredible uh it's a such a great resource and reference material for more folk horror horror movies uh, i also really enjoyed a german movie called i'm your man uh, which stars dan stevens who people might know from downton abbey who played matthew i think that's who he played in downton abbey um it is about an AI. Dan Stevens plays an AI, a robot, um, and kind of it talks a bit about like human connections as well. Like, can you get connected to an AI, and, and that kind of. And I love sci-fi, so yeah, I'm Your Man is a really, really great movie that I believe was the sh- Germany's submission for their international pick or international film at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Another movie, another international film is Denmark's Riders of Justice. I love Mads Mikkelsen. He is the greatest. And he actually just did an interview with GQ and was shooting down uh, method acting, which was hilarious. Um, But he has this movie called Riders of Justice. It's an action movie, but it's also got just a lot of heart. And it's very, very funny. Um, I was... I really wanted to put that in my top 10, to be honest, but it just, I I couldn't figure out which movie I wanted to take out. Uh, But it's really great. And Mads is amazing as he always is. Another movie I really enjoyed is called Swan Song. That came out at like, I want to say December 25th of last year. And it it is Mahershala Ali, who another sci-fi film, he plays a man who is sick, uh, terminally ill and there is a service that exists in his world where he can have a clone um, that will go and live and continue living his life. Like he'll have all of his memories and, and, and relationships, everything is downloaded into this AI. Uh, The catch is, is that the family can never know that he is sick and that that is a clone. Um, So he has to kind of accept the fact that he hasn't passed away yet. um, But another man or another being is gonna go live the rest of his life for him basically um it's a really interesting concept and it's done really really well shot in vancouver which a lot of movies are but yeah that's it kind of shows vancouver off really nicely uh it's a great movie though and that just kind of came out at just really last the 11th hour of 2021 and was a bit of a weird release date for it but it's great movie And my last honorable mention is a short film. It's a 40 minute short film. So it kind of buggers the idea of a short film, which I think is usually about 30 minutes. Um, It's from Taiwan and it's called Taipei Suicide Story. Yeah, it's a little bit bleak, as you can tell from the title. It has the word suicide in it. And it is about a hotel in Taipei that is where people can go to commit suicide and you can do it Kind of cleanly, like they come into your room the next day and clean up after you and and um, dispose of your body and all that kind of stuff. So it's a dark movie or dark film. Um, and it's not that 100% this is not for everybody. It's it's there's obviously a lot of trigger warnings associated with a film like that. But it's very, very thought provoking and very moving in its own way. So, yeah, those were probably the five that in addition to some of the ones that you mentioned as well that I really loved from last year
0: nice okay yeah uh those are some some great picks especially woodland stark and days be witch that's another one i've been championing a lot mm-hmm. too but for me uh i'm gonna go with another a24 film that kind of fell off the radar as far as awards contention that's the green knight we we mentioned it uh, earlier and and this is a movie that really kind of lives with you for a long time and i know it's it's a hard movie to kind of get through at times but i just love how beautiful and unique it was Parallel Mothers mentioned it when I was talking about official competition. Another Pedro Almodovar film with Penelope Cruz, absolutely crushing it. I loved how he was able to take two storylines that are pretty disconnected from each other and eventually bring them all together and tell a very satisfying story that is both uh, a drama about what it's like to be a mother and potentially lose your child and all this sort of stuff, raising a child, but then also connecting the Spanish civil war with it, which <laughs> sounds ridiculous on the surface, but it really does work out. The Asgar Farhadi film, a hero, which may or may not, uh, be a movie that, uh, he stole from a former student of his, or at least a concept of it. So it's interesting that that court battle is still ongoing, but, uh, I love Farhadi's films, and it's a Netflix film, so it's super easy to watch. If you've never watched an Iranian film, this is a, a really great entry point about a man who finds a bag of money and decides to return it. But the problem is, things are not as easy as it seems, uh, but that's all I really want to say about it. And then uh, another one is Power of the Dog, which uh, should have been the Best Picture winner, in my opinion, Really love the this Jane Campion anti Western movie and the way it examines masculinity and what it means to be a man, especially in the West and putting on characters and all this sort of stuff was very interesting. I love this movie is beautiful to look at and a beautiful film. And then lastly, Steph's pick Zola. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, it is such a, a unique and, and interesting, fresh movie and one I really do want to rewatch again. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to bring Steph on when we do our a 24 rewatch of definitely. it. Definitely. I am not going to ask you what you've been working on, Rachel, because instead in this, Uh, Show notes, I'm going to have links to a bunch of reviews that you had done throughout the year. And of course, referencing other shows that we talked about as well, our make remakes for for Dune and Red Rocket and Tragedy of Macbeth. We're going to include all of those in there as well. But uh, Rachel, where can people find you if they do want to see more of your work? I'm
1: on Twitter at underscore RachelKH. And also you can go to my website, RachelKH.com, where I put all of my reviews and interviews and all that fun jazz.
0: Awesome. Well, you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And let us know what your favorite movies were from last year. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.